Hey, everyone. Welcome to Dig Deep. So my husband and I took a pretty bold parenting step this January. We took all four of our children to Disney World. All last year, we planned and we saved. We talked my parents into going with us, which was crucial. And then we surprised our kids on Christmas morning. It was so fun. It was a really, really awesome surprise. The kids were excited. I was so excited. My parents were so excited. And Ben was preparing himself for the worst. (laughs) See, my husband does not enjoy crowds very much. And my kids are so aware of this about him that this past weekend we were watching Cinderella as like a family movie night, and it gets to the royal ball scene, and my oldest just says, Dad would not want to go to the royal ball. And I said, why not? She's like, he doesn't do well in crowds. That's what my my 10-year-old said. It's true. He does not like crowds. And then you add to the crowd issue that Ben does not share my nostalgia for Disney World because the first time he went to Disney World was when he was a freshman in college and a group of friends decided to all go over spring break. But as the trip grew closer, more and more people dropped out of the trip. And so it ended up just being him and one guy and one girl going. And right before they left, the guy and the girl started dating. So he experienced Disney World as a third-wheel freshman in college. But he agreed to go, and he really was getting really excited. But our our first day in the park in the afternoon, I wondered if we had made a horrible mistake. See, that first day in the park was a particularly busy day because it was sort of the end of the holiday crowds. And Ben would tell you, he'd want to clarify if he was here, that he doesn't just struggle in crowds. He doesn't like parenting in crowds, which I understand. And we had all day been parenting and guiding our children through the chaos of Disney World. And in the afternoon, we were trying to defend our spot for the parade on Main Street. And our two-year-old, who was missing her nap at this point, was starting to melt down. And our older children were begging to buy souvenirs. And... Everyone around us, they seem to lose all sense of personal space and appropriate social decency. I mean, people just completely lose their minds trying to get a spot for the parade. And in the midst of it, I look at my husband, who has our fussy two-year-old on his shoulders, and he doesn't even make eye contact with me. He's looking off into the distance, and I can see that he's biting the inside of his cheek really hard, and he just says, I hate this. I hate this so much was all he could manage to say in that moment. Ah, the happiest place on earth, right? Brothers Chip and Dan Heath, they analyze the magic of Disney World in their book, The Power of Moments. And I think it's so fascinating. This is what they say. Psychologists have discovered some counterintuitive answers to the puzzle of memory. Let's say you take your family to Disney World. During your visit, imagine we text you every hour asking you to rate your experience at that moment on a scale from 1 to 10, where 1 is lousy and 10 is terrific. Let's assume we check in with you, they say, eight times. And then they give an example in the book, but I'm going to give you the Alston family Disney experience ratings from our first day in the Magic Kingdom. Imagine that Chip and Dan Heath were texting us to check in. 9 a.m., we were cattle herding our kids into the parking lot, onto the tram, through the bag check, then onto the monorail, and finally through the park gates. It's a ridiculous process, but there's some excitement in the air. Everybody's getting really excited, so we'll give that a five. 
10 a.m., we're trying to get the classic family picture in front of the castle, only to find out that our son is frowning in every single picture. We give that a three. 11 a.m., we're riding the Buzz Lightyear ride together, trying to defeat Zerg with our little laser tag guns. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's having fun. We'll give that a seven. Around noon, we're enjoying ice cream together in a sunny, fenced-in garden area. It's the first time all day when we haven't felt like sardines. We'll give that a seven. Ben told me at the end of that that if I needed him for the rest of the day, that's where he would be. 1 p.m., as I said, we were trying to defend our little three-square-foot spot for the parade that we were trying to squeeze eight humans into, into with a fussy toddler and whining older children. That was a one. That was a low for the day. 5 p.m., we're riding Space Mountain with our big kids and Opa. Everybody's laughing and screaming, asking when can we ride it again. 8 p.m., we're defending our spot for the fireworks. It's very reminiscent of the parade experience, but not quite as bad, so we'll give it a three. And then at 9 p.m., the fireworks begin. Our kids' jaws drop and their eyes fill with wonder. And then for whatever reason, I burst into tears when Tinkerbell jumps out of the castle and zip lines through the sky. That was a 10. So to arrive, this is what the authors say, to arrive at an overall summary of our day, we could simply average all those ratings and we'd get a 5.75. This is a pretty good day. Now let's say that the authors were to text us again, and they say, imagine we text you a few weeks later and ask us to rate our overall Disney experience. They say a reasonable prediction would be that our answer would be 5.75, since that was the average rating of our highs and lows throughout the day. But psychologists would say that's way off. They'd predict that looking back at, on that day in Disney World, our overall rating would be a 9.5. And they'd be right. That's because research has found that in recalling an experience, we ignore most of what happened to us, and we focus instead on a few particular moments, a few key memories. And for us, a few moments from that day stand out, riding Space Mountain, the parade meltdown, and watching the fireworks. See, psychologists have found that the peaks and the pits in our lives are what we tend to remember the most. And all of the middle ground stuff sort of fades into the background or gets clumped into one of those other experiences. So despite the moderate to severe stress that we experienced in Disney World, they have managed to create such powerful peak experiences that most people walk away from the experience rating it with between a nine and a 10. That is the magic, that is the power of Disney. The way that Ben puts it now is he says, Disney has somehow managed to get me to a place where I am simultaneously saying, I will never go back there, and when can we go back? Yeah. And it's true. This week in your homework, you drew a timeline of your life, and you identified some of the major peaks and pits that you've experienced in this life so far. And for most of us, when we do an exercise like that, if we were asked to fill in all the details in between, we could probably do a pretty good job but it wouldn't change the overall emotional impact that we feel when we look at our timeline because our experience of this life and our clearest memories are often the peaks and the pits that we experience. And that's what we're going to see in Joseph's timeline too. As we read his story, we're really just given the peaks and the pits. There are going to be verses in the coming weeks where it just sort of casually says, and then two years went by. Two years went by. I'm sure a lot happened in those two years, but we are primarily given just the peaks and the pits of his story. 
At the beginning of our passage this week, Joseph is having a pretty great day. He's recently had some dreams that suggest that he has an exciting future of leadership ahead of him. He's enjoying his father's favor. He's been given an assignment to go check on his brothers. He's wearing his ornate robe that just proves to the world how loved he is. He's kind of living his best life. And then his life is forever altered by a horrible betrayal by his brothers. And that's the way life seems to be sometimes, doesn't it? We're casually strolling through life and then we're struck with tragedy in some form or another. And it's jarring, it's strange. And when we look back at those moments when tragedy finds us and we think, man, that felt like just a normal day in so many ways. I went to the gym, I read and wrote emails, I picked up milk on the way home from work. I had no idea what was coming down the pike for me and we're left in shock. And as we read Genesis 37, verses 12 through 36, we see that Joseph's entire life goes from a high peak to the lowest pit in 24 verses. It's so quick. It's so sudden. And what I find really interesting in this section of Joseph's story is that we don't hear anything from Joseph in this section. Whether he actually said anything while this was all happening and it's just not recorded, we don't know. But it actually seems fitting to me that Joseph is silent during the betrayal that he experiences from his brothers. Because he was most likely in shock, never imagining that his brothers would be capable of such atrocity. And then he's thrown into a pit. I mean, can you imagine this? Did you really put yourself in his shoes this week? His brothers are up there having lunch, deciding whether or not they're going to kill him. They ultimately decide to traffic him, selling him into slavery. I imagine him with his hands tied, probably to the back of a camel, being dragged away, looking back at his brothers, seeing one of them holding his ornate robe that was a symbol of his father's love, seeing another one holding the bag of money that they received after selling him, and being led away by a foreign people group, not knowing the culture, not knowing the language, wondering if he was ever going to see his father or any of his brothers ever again. And so I don't know what he was feeling, but I imagine he was feeling a ton of fear, maybe shock and denial that it was even happening. I imagine he was feeling anger at some point. And then his brothers tear the robe up, dip it in blood, and then go to their father Jacob and in verse 32 say, we found this, examine it to see if it's your son's robe. In verse 33 Jacob recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And so his father wept for him. See, I imagine that in their anger, the brothers did not calculate how this decision would completely devastate their father. And sure, Jacob had his flaws as a parent, but he was still their father, and now he was completely overcome with the worst grief possible on the planet, the loss of a child. And they come around him, and they try to comfort him. And this is just my guess, but I imagine they felt a deep sense of shame and regret over this horrible decision that they've made. And meanwhile, Joseph is taken off to Egypt and sold as a slave to a man named Potiphar. And in all of it, we don't hear anything from Joseph and we don't hear anything from God. What did God think of all of this, of this horrible atrocity? 
Have you ever felt that way in one of the pits in your life? See, when I look back at some of the worst pits in my life, I am tempted to say, God, where were you? Where were you when that was happening? And I take great comfort in knowing that I'm not alone and that the men and women of the Bible knew that feeling. And this week in your homework, you read Psalm 13 and heard David cry out to God in a very similar way in a time of suffering. He says in Psalm 13, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my, enem- and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered, where are you, God? Where were you when that happened? In verse 8, he says, look at me. Answer me. Where are you? Because sometimes in this life, one moment we're living on a peak, loving God and loving life, and then the next we are knocked into the pit. On September 29th, 2015, I woke up like any other day. I had breakfast, and I got my kids off to school, and I was on my way to the gym when I got a call from my husband asking if I could come home right then. And I came home, and we sat on the couch, and he had a really grave look on his face, and he said calmly and slowly, I got fired this morning. And because my husband is called to ministry and was working for a church that we loved with all of our hearts, We lost more than just a job that day. And as we tried to navigate what on earth we were supposed to do next, it meant gradually losing a community that we loved, ministries that we'd poured our souls into, and friendships that became so complicated overnight. Almost exactly one month later, While we were still reeling from this loss and trying to get our bearings, our third-born, who was three at the time, got sick with what the doctors assured us on the phone was just a stomach virus. She'd been throwing up for a couple days. She had a fever. But she was starting to get these weird little spots on her skin. And again, the doctor said, it's probably just a rash that happens with viruses sometimes. But my mama intuition, you mamas in the room know what that mama intuition feels like. I knew that something was wrong, but it was the weekend, so at 5 a.m. on a Saturday, we ended up in the ER. And the first doctor ordered a bunch of blood work, and almost two hours later, she said she ultimately needed to wait for the next doctor to come on on call because she just didn't know what we were dealing with. That's not something you ever want to hear from an ER doctor. When that next doctor came on call, She was able to pretty quickly make a diagnosis, and she said that our daughter was suffering from a a strange disease that's an inflammation of the blood vessels. It comes with horrible intestinal pain and joint pain, which explained why our baby girl could barely eat or drink or take a step without buckling from the pain. And then she said, the cause is unknown, and there's no treatment. Just try to give her Tylenol and keep her hydrated, she will probably be dealing with these symptoms for about six weeks. And it felt like a punch to the gut. So they sent us home 
And for the next six weeks, we took turns sleeping near her to help her with vomiting in the night. She lost a bunch of weight. Um, we had to take her to the pediatrician every couple days for urinalysis because the kidneys are at risk in this disease and can sustain chronic damage. And then about six weeks later, her symptoms began to lift, and we were so, so grateful. We were just praising God. It was about Thanksgiving time. And then as we started to recover and return to life as usual again, my husband insisted that I go to the doctor, and it was confirmed that I had indeed torn my rotator cuff one of the nights when I was scooping her up to take her to the bathroom to throw up. And then just a couple months later, um, my heart and mind spiraled into a deep, dark season of depression. And that was an enemy that I hadn't seen in many years. And in the midst of that season, my husband and I heard a sermon, and the pastor was teaching on gratitude. And he said, you know, gratitude isn't a feeling that just sort of happens to you. It's a discipline that you practice. And so whatever you're dealing with, I want to challenge you to practice gratitude. Say, I am grateful for blank. And I'll be honest, I thought, you have got to be kidding me. Grateful for what? It felt like every aspect of my life was falling apart. And I think that's how David felt when he wrote Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How, must, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. That's how I felt. And then David makes this sudden shift and proclaims, but I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And at the time when I read that, I thought, really, David? Has he? Because from verses 1 through 4, I didn't get the impression that you feel right now like he's been good to you. But David, in the midst of his grief, chooses to worship. He praises God and he thanks him for three things. For his love, for his salvation, and for his goodness. A dear friend of mine right now is living through the greatest grief imaginable, the loss of a child. And she told me recently that a mentor of hers who has also lived through the grief of losing a child challenged her to drag herself to worship. Such a powerful phrase. And she's doing that. I've seen it with my own eyes. She is dragging herself to worship and practicing gratitude. Back in 2015, when we heard that sermon on gratitude, my husband and I looked at each other and agreed that no matter what we were feeling, we were going to practice that. And we would do it together because it does help to do it in community. And we would take turns going back and forth, saying the things that we were grateful for. And we agreed that we would make that a practice that we embrace moving forward in good times and in bad. And you know what we found? Gratitude gives us our footing, both on the peaks of life and in the pits of life. Practicing gratitude gives us humility. 
when we're on life's peaks. And it gives us hope when we're in life's pits. See, in times where I've been in more of a peak in my life, when I practice gratitude, suddenly my bad attitude about little things comes into focus and it helps me to stop taking people and things in my life for granted, which I do all too often. And the times where we've done this in the pit, it's helped me not give up, not to surrender to a pit of complete despair. It reminds me that there is still good in the world, that there's hope, that I won't live in the pit forever. And I don't know whether you're on a peak or in a pit right now. Some of you are enjoying a peak season in your life, and I am so happy for you. If you've been thinking, holy cow, why did I sign up for this? I had no idea this series was going to be so intense. I want you to know I am so glad that you're enjoying a wonderful season in your life. Please don't jump ship and say this is just too much of a downer for me. But some of us are experiencing a pit, and I think a lot of us are experiencing both simultaneously. Pastor Rick Warren says that he used to think of life as being a succession of hills and valleys or peaks and pits, as I would say, but that his thinking, he says, has changed over the years. He says, rather than life being hills and valleys, I believe it's kind of like two rails on a railroad track. At all times, you have something good and something bad in your life. And then he goes on to give the example of the huge blessing that came into his life when he published his book, Purpose Driven Life, which became the fastest selling Christian book of all time. It gave him enormous influence and incredible platform for his ministry, but at the same time, he found out that his wife Kay had cancer. On one track in his life, he was experiencing great blessing, a peak experience. On the other track, he was experiencing a, pick, a pit. And that's really what life is like most of the time, right? I don't know what your experience was like as you drew your timeline this week, but for a lot of mine, I, I drew them out, but then I realized, well, those two were really close together, or maybe they were happening simultaneously, both a peak and a pit at the same time. And so maybe that's where you find yourself this morning, not totally on a peak, not completely in a pit, but experiencing both. And so wherever you are this morning, whatever has been leading you up to today, I want to challenge you with the same challenge that was given to us back in 2015. I want to challenge you to practice gratitude as a form of worship. And so today, we'll say together, as David did, even though I can't see you right now, God, even though you seem silent in this part of the story, I choose to place my trust in your unfailing love to rejoice in your salvation, and I will practice gratitude for the goodness that you've shown me in this life. And so today, in our small group time, that's what we're going to do. The three simple questions that we're going to ask as we open up our timelines, look at them together, is where have I experienced God's love in my life? Go back over your timeline. Write the word love. Write the situation next to it. Where have I experienced God's love in my life? Where have I experienced God's salvation? Where have I experienced God's goodness? in my life. I want to challenge you to be specific. Where have you experienced his love, his salvation, his goodness? And you know, it's okay if you still look at the experiences on your timeline and there's some where you say, yeah, I still don't know where God was exactly when that was happening in my life. That's okay. 
It's okay if you feel today like you're in a pit and right now you don't necessarily feel like God is with you. You're not feeling his love or his salvation or his goodness. Be honest with God the way that David was honest with him. But then drag yourself to worship. Practice gratitude. Search the whole of your life for evidence of God's love, his salvation, and his goodness. And I want to tell you, some of you, you may look back at your timeline and see that you've never really experienced God's salvation in your life. Maybe the pattern that you see as you look back is that you've been trying to do it on your own strength. You've been trying to save yourself. Maybe you are even here because you want to try to be a better person or you think that something about the Bible is going to help you do a better job and you're striving and striving to save yourself. I want to tell you, salvation has already been paid for in full by Jesus' death, and it's been sealed by his resurrection, and it's a free gift that he's offering to you. And so maybe the thing that you need to do this morning is receive that for the first time. And if that is you, please talk to your small group leader about it. And no one is going to judge you. If you've been a part of the church for years and years and years, but you're not sure that you've really taken that step, take that step today. Or if you're listening online, go find someone at a local church. Or if you don't have a local church, email us through the website, and we will help you find a local church where someone can help you answer those questions. Because there is no greater gift in this life, in the midst of all the peaks and the pits, there is no greater gift than God's salvation that saves us for eternity, but also offers us salvation and the way to life right here and now in our everyday living. So we're going to practice this together today. We're going to drag ourselves to worship. We're going to practice gratitude together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll do that together. God, we are grateful we are grateful for your love, for your salvation, and your goodness in our lives. And even in seasons where we don't know why you are not stepping in, why you're not changing the course of our lives the way that I imagine Joseph would have loved for you to change the course of his life in that moment, we're going to drag ourselves to worship today and say that we trust you and we are grateful for your love, your salvation, and your goodness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.